Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is A Life of Color by N.V. Haskell. N.V. Haskell is an award-winning author of speculative fiction who lives somewhere between civilization and the haunted caves of Kentucky with her long-suffering spouse, rescue pets, and too many squirrels and groundhogs that she can't help but feed. When she's not busy writing, you can find her attending Comic-Cons or Renaissance fairs, donned in her favorite costumes, running badly, or trying to read too many books at a time. After many years in healthcare, she remains stubbornly, or foolishly, optimistic. Find her online at www.nvhaskell.com. That's N-V-H-A-S-K-E-L-L.com or on Twitter at nhhaskell. Let's jump in. Last fall's decaying leaves shifted beneath my feet as I crossed the yard. The others watched me come, glancing nervously at the infant held tenderly in the old woman's arms. Moonlight flickered through the barren tree branches and glinted off the baby's delicate skin. Her eyes shimmered with rainbows and nebulae, beneath eyelashes so pale they were barely visible. It was because of this tiny bundle that I had been hauled from my cozy bed in the middle of the night. What her story was, and where she came from, were puzzles that I wished hadn't happened on my watch. The sleep loss fogging my brain faded as I took in the baby's situation. I swore silently, too quietly for any of the three to hear. The old woman had found the baby in the dingy alley behind her home, wrapped in the paint-stained blanket she still wore. The police officer and social worker had come along later. But after David, my boss of the Department of Magical Resources, woke me at 2 a.m., it became my problem. Magic baby, magic expert. It didn't matter that my expertise was adult crimes, not children. During my last performance appraisal, David had celebrated my departmental loyalty and hinted at a promotion. Using my desire for advancement, he'd easily leveraged me into the weekend rotations by saying it would demonstrate how effectively I could work outside of the crimes division. Truthfully, the schedule change hadn't been a huge sacrifice. There was nothing for me outside of work. Relationships had proven to be too taxing, not worth the effort I put in. People always left or died, like my parents when I was three. And though the multiple foster homes I'd been raised in had done an adequate job of feeding and housing me, they'd lacked warmth or encouragement. It was no wonder I still sought approval from figures in authority. Gazing upon the abandoned infant stirred a sympathy for her. Hard of hearing, the elderly woman had first assumed the cries belonged to a neighborhood cat in Heatigan. But after the racket persisted for more than an hour, she decided to investigate and phoned the police immediately upon finding the child. The infant was said to be only a few weeks old. A magical child abandoned was practically unheard of. The magical communities were notoriously private and, although a few of the larger clans had representatives that appeared in governmental regulation meetings when the situation warranted it, most of the smaller clans avoided the greater non-magical society completely unless they were called on for required services. Several clans had dispersed into unsanctioned areas, which made it difficult for the department to keep track of them all. The baby's pale hair and dainty features made her seem angelic, yet beneath her eyelids danced a myriad of colors. With a small, mournful whimper, tears of sapphire blue paint trickled down her face and further stained the blanket. 
the oil and organic compounds of the paint's pigment mingled with the other smells of the city. The exhaust from the cars and buses, the garbage, and even the odor of the older woman, who rocked the infant gently. She hummed softly, mindless of the streams of colorful goo running from the child's eyes. The woman's toothless smile matched the baby's as she cooed over her. Maybe caring for children came naturally to her. As the girl drifted peacefully to sleep, her lips puffed slightly with each breath, and I cursed softly again. Damn David for making me take these weekend on-call shifts. He was well aware that my specialty was magical crimes, not children. I never did well with anything that required special care. A graveyard of dead plants served as proof of my ineptitude. The succulents lasted a bit longer, but ultimately met their demise as well. The moment they came into my possession, their fate was sealed. I had hoped to be able to pass the baby off quickly, until the social worker thrust a car seat and diaper bag full of supplies at me while informing me that no non-magical homes would take the infant because of her special needs. It fell to my department to find a placement. Although I argued and threatened her with a demotion if she left, she flashed a contemptuous look at me before driving away. All I'd be able to do was mention her name in the administrative meeting, come Monday morning. I knew that finding placement in any home was a challenge, but magical homes were impossible. Their tight-knit communities were scattered in the countryside, sequestered from the curious eyes of non-magical peoples, and understandably hostile to my historically untrustworthy employer. The likelihood of getting help from any of the clans for a child of unknown origin was slim. Though they were fiercely protective of their own, they were unlikely to take an astray of unusual magical talents, which made me wonder where the girl had come from. When David finally answered his phone, he simply told me to handle it and bring the child to the office on Monday morning. He hinted about the promotion I had applied for being a factor. That advancement would remove me from the grunt work and weaken rotations, elevating my footsteps up the corporate ladder as I'd always wanted. It didn't hurt that it came with a hefty pay increase as well. The task would have been much easier if this were an adolescent or adult of a known clan. The department's holding cells were constructed to deal with certain magical elements. Soundproof cells for musical clans, fireproof rooms with automatic extinguishers for the fire clans, sterile metal rooms for the nature clans. But there were no facilities for magical children or infants, and certainly nothing specifically built for paint magic. I watched silently as the detective fastened the car seat in the back of my car. Aside from those swirling eyes, the infant appeared just like any other, probably riddled with germs, but also fragile and innocent. Even though my stomach nodded at the sight of her, I told myself I could manage. I, Laura Author, the woman who always declined to hold all her friends' children, was now responsible for taking care of a magical infant for 36 hours. Humanity had continued to exist for many thousands of years, right? Certainly it couldn't be that difficult. When I got home, I had no choice but to place the baby's car seat beside my bed, which I regretted when she woke up crying and angry three hours later. Anxiety filled me as I tried to figure out how to put an end to the cerulean acrylic streaming from her eyes, or the loud cries erupting from her small lips. A noxious smell, like a mixture of cat pee and stargazer lilies, stung my nostrils as I unclipped the straps that secured her, distracting me from the yellow and green colors that splattered under my silk pajamas. When I placed my hands beneath her tiny hips, liquid squished between my fingers. When I pulled my hands away, they were covered in emerald and lemon paint. My disgust was immediate, causing my stomach to churn and threaten emptying. 
I'd dealt with messes in crime scenes before, but never anything like this. Another sharp wail made me push aside my revulsion. I rushed the car seat, with a still screaming baby inside it, toward the bathroom. I placed everything gently in the old clawfoot tub as paint dripped slowly over the sides of the seat. The color swirled like a kaleidoscope against the white porcelain, blues and reds turning purple and blending with yellow and green to make an ominous hue. There was no time to consider the mess, even though I knew it would take more than bleach to clean it up. I needed help. I wiped my hands on a towel and, not knowing what else to do, rushed to my neighbor's house. With her one-year-old twins, I considered Molly to be an expert in these matters, and there was no one else that might help. Though we'd only ever said a few polite words here and there, when she saw the distress on my face, she ran back with me. The inside of the bathtub had splotches of bright yellows and oranges from Iris's spittle that dripped in thin ribbons down the white tub's interior. Loud protests continued as Molly lifted the pink-cheeked girl in her arms and peeled the wet clothes away. The baby was too small to safely bathe in the tub, Molly said, so we held her in the sink and washed the paint off with a little soap and warm water. The paint swirled down the drain, leaving only traces of orange and blues on the porcelain. The little one's sobs quieted, dissolving into occasional hiccups as we wrapped her in a towel and put a fresh diaper on her. Molly didn't ask where the baby had come from. She knew where I worked and knew better than to ask questions. Though the paint had obviously surprised her, she had handled it with more grace than I had, and, to her credit, she didn't chide me for not knowing what to do. An hour after the mess was dealt with, she returned with a bag full of baby items she had intended for donation. She taught me how to prepare formula and test its warmth. I offered to pay her, but she declined and dismissed my apologies, telling me that no one was born knowing what to do. Eventually, the baby dozed off in my arms, and though my limbs ached from holding her so long, I wasn't sure how to set her down without waking her. When I awoke later, a strand of my hair was tangled in her fingers. She gazed at me with eyes made of swirling sunflower yellow and sunset orange. She let out a low giggle, like she was the only one in on the joke. I couldn't help but smile back, wondering what I looked like to her. Was I swirls of magenta or blotches of gray cast in sharp angles? Maybe I was nothing more than a blurry figure, if she could see me at all. I shook away those thoughts, reminding myself that it didn't matter anyway. This would only be my problem for one more day. Whatever foster home she wound up in would surely tend to her better than I could. On Monday morning, I stumbled into the office with my hair in a mess and a streak of neon pink down one shoulder of my houndstooth blouse. One day of diaper disasters and a broken night's sleep had confirmed what I had always known. I wasn't cut out for parenthood. I'd hoped that by handing the baby off to the department researchers, they could find a link between her and one of the clans cataloged in the database. That should have been the end of my direct involvement, but when David insisted I supervise, that was my day wasted. We didn't get many adults here, and no one remembered a child this young ever being brought in. The awareness of the girl's vulnerability in this cold environment put me on edge. Dr. Arias was gentler with her than I'd expected when he put her through a battery of tests, MRIs, CT scans, EEGs, and EKGs. The lab technicians handled the whimpering baby with a professional detachment while they lined each machine with drop cloths to protect them. It felt as if she were a specimen they were hastily examining in order to classify. Even I thought a baby deserved better than that. 
The phlebotomist tried to extract a blood sample with a butterfly needle, but whatever ran through the baby's veins was too thick for the small needle's gauge, and using a larger one would be damaging. Her wails at the needle's prodding made me queasy and brought back old memories of the testing I'd undergone in the foster system when I was small. I remembered feeling alone and afraid. If that testing had shown any magical talents, perhaps I would have had a clan take me in. I hoped that would be the case for this girl. Iris 15738, her department-issued name, was special. Of that, there was no doubt. If she had been from a more prominent clan, the researchers would have quickly lost interest. But because of the rarity of her magic, they wanted to know how it worked, and, more importantly, if it could be useful. In exchange for government aid and certain assurances of land and protections, the magical clans were legally obligated to assist in certain situations. The nature clans handled natural disasters and farming during times of drought. The fire clans were used for controlling burns and military procedures. The musical clans for entertainment and therapy. But the more physically artistic clans were rare. There were only a few sculptors left, and their creations could only animate for a few seconds, which made them practically useless for most purposes. Years ago, after reforms were passed that gave the clans more autonomy and less oversight, Many of the smaller factions had used the new freedom to quietly scatter. After scouring through the departmental archives, I found only one reference to a paint clan from decades prior. Address unknown. The phone number attached to them was ancient. The line crackled when I left a voice message. Leaving the girl under Dr. Arias's care, I returned to my office to reach out to the small network of approved foster homes with some magical experience, but they each declined. One said they had no room, whereas another honestly said they weren't qualified to handle the babe's issues. I then began the arduous task of calling the larger clans while searching for information about where she might have come from. Then I called a dozen smaller magical settlements within 200 miles. Eleven had no knowledge of her or her paint magic. The twelfth was the mysterious clan with the ancient number. David summoned me late in the afternoon, his face somber. Iris slept peacefully in the car seat, which was placed in a chair across from his desk. Any luck in finding a place for her? He asked, and sighed when I shook my head. Hate to do this to you, but you'll probably have to keep her for another night or two, unfortunately. We'll cover the damages and I'll add a commendation to your file. Simply fill out the necessary forms and document everything with photographs. But there's no one else, Laura. John's got the triplets and Brianna's taking care of her mom. Unless you'd rather give her to the researchers. His lips pursed in disapproval, and he looked away. We both knew their experiments would turn more invasive without oversight, and Dr. Arias couldn't be there all the time. But there was something else hidden in David's tone. What is it? I asked. There's something wrong with her. My heart sank. Iris stirred in her sleep in the seat next to me. I combed my fingers through her sparse hair and waited for him to continue. Her brain activity is abnormal probably due to hydrocephalus or whatever it's called with pain. He paused, trying to make sure that I couldn't misunderstand. Her heart is arrhythmic, most likely working too hard to pump the thick fluid around her body. But without testing her enzymes, we can't be sure. There's no cure. Iris's chest rose and fell, accompanied by an occasional pause or gasp. Petite hands clutched the edges of a pink blanket. It was probably Dr. Arias who had placed a plush giraffe beside her. Its head was already covered in mint green acrylic drool. It reminded me of the stuffed horse I'd been given in my first foster home. I'd carried it with me through a dozen other homes, 
a source of security and something soft to hold in an otherwise hard world. Dr. Arias doesn't think she'll make it past a year, David said. He looked at me warily, as if I were going to fall apart at the news. I try to keep my expression neutral and steady the sudden throb in my heart. After everything she'd been through in her short life, the girl didn't deserve this fate. Iris deserved to live. I took a deep breath. Percentages? 80% chance she has a stroke, heart attack, or turns septic in the next six months. 100% within the next year. My chest deflated as ideas for a solution rushed through my mind. But if we find out where she came from, there might be a chance. David shrugged. Only if you can find her clan and convince them to talk to us. By the end of the first week, I'd resorted to wearing shapeless, faded clothing once reserved for yard work or donation. The days were whirlwinds of endless feedings, diapers, and departmental meetings. The sleepless nights left me in a dazed stupor. My home's modern decor had turned into a canvas splashed with bright acrylics and oils. But aside from the damage being done, there were growing smiles and curious hands that slowly tugged at my emotional armor as Iris planted something both unfamiliar and uncomfortably vulnerable beneath it. There was still no home willing to take her, not once the department revealed her complications, but the thought of leaving her with the researchers made me nauseous. Adults who committed magic-based crimes were all dealt with properly. I'd made sure of it because I understood how the judicial system worked in those cases, and although the Department of Magical Resources had gone to great lengths to make amends for its past through media outlets and charity initiatives, most everyone suspected they kept certain practices covert. Without an advocate, Iris might disappear within a month. Though I'd never witnessed anything personally, there were long-standing rumors about experimentation that occurred in the department's mysterious lower levels. I'd thought that it was all conjecture, but now the fear that there might be truth to it worried me. Iris was more vulnerable than I'd ever been. The ambitious governmental loyalist that I'd always been began to question everything, including why my other assignments were becoming less important to me when compared to Iris. In desperation, I reached out again to the magical communities, widening the radius to 500 miles, with the same sad result. According to one trusted magical resource, the paint clans had vanished years ago. No one knew anything about Iris, and after a few brief questions, No one wanted her either. Despite the department's considerable resources and informants, we had yet to reach the one elusive clan. But I left another message on their nondescript voicemail and waited. The following weeks felt like an eternity. My coworkers had been helping with feedings and diaper changes during work hours, but something strange began to happen. Iris would scream hysterically until returned to my arms. Brianna nearly dropped the struggling girl when she attempted to change her and the department was having to reimburse not only my costs, but many of my coworkers' wardrobes after Iris's messy cries and accidents. With each feeding and diaper change, my coworkers were met with Iris's growing levels of hysteria, until they stopped offering to help altogether. And as Iris's cries grew louder, a subtle pressure began to grow around me. One email complained that Iris was upsetting the office's routine and productivity. Another suggested that if we couldn't find a home for her, The researchers on Level 3B would be happy to study her until she passed away. Level 3B's enthusiasm at gaining more information about paint magic by studying an ill child was off-putting, to say the least. David's behavior changed drastically over the same time frame. Where he'd initially insisted that I keep Iris and shown concern for her well-being, 
His tone changed to annoyance bordering on disdain. More than once, he suggested that I consider leaving her at the facility overnight so that I could get a full night's rest, but I heard the veiled demand in his voice. I suspected that the change was the result of pressure from his superiors. When I continued to resist, David asked that I stay away from meetings so that Iris didn't cause a distraction. In fact, I was encouraged to work from home, but refused. I watched helplessly as projects I was vying for were given to less qualified coworkers. Knowing I risked my promotion, I swallowed my anger and frustration, though I wrote down every detail of what was happening. All hope of finding Iris's clan began to fade away. One afternoon, David's tall figure filled the doorway of my office, a room now spotted teal and lemon, with a lingering scent of hydrocarbons hanging in the air. His carefully crafted appearance of morality was slipping away with each of our interactions. I can practically guarantee that promotion if you will give her up, Laura. His gaze never left mine as he spoke. The regional director is offering a significant raise, too. I'm sure you must be exhausted from dealing with her. Give her to the department and rest assured that they will take care of her for the rest of her days. I sighed and rubbed my eyes, silently begging for the headache that had been etched behind them for the past few weeks to ease up temporarily. For a fleeting second, I considered giving in. But I'd been a child in the system once, and Iris deserved no less than what I'd had. A warm bed, a gentle word, patience. David's assurances rang hollow, and while caring for her didn't feel quite as overwhelming as it once had, the thought of leaving her alone and afraid made me ill. Iris needed me, and maybe I'd needed her to remind me that there was a life outside of work. You're okay with her disappearing into the system? I asked. David winced at the contempt in my voice while I studied the green and blue staining in the creases of my hands. In the process of giving up rest, personal care, and anything resembling normalcy for the past six weeks, I'd realized that there were some things I couldn't in good conscience do, even if it was for the agency. I had come too far with Iris to back out now. Fuck him and the department for asking me to. His face hardened as I said as much. He walked away, taking my advancement with him as Iris began to cry. My cell phone vibrated at 3 a.m. a week later. I rushed to answer it before it disturbed Iris, scurrying into the living room, now painted in sporadic shades of Tahitian blue, lilac, and burnt sienna. Did you call about a baby? An older woman whispered over the connection. My voice wavered as I answered. Yes? Anticipation swelled within me, hoping this was the call I'd been waiting for. I'm Laura Author from the Department of... Don't say it, she snapped. Tell me what she looks like. The baby? She took a deep, shuddering breath, filled with emotional restraint. Flippant words that all babies looked alike nearly left my mouth, but that was old thinking and now felt completely disingenuous. An awkward tension stretched in the silence between us. That she was calling at this time of night with a lowered voice led me to the conclusion that she was afraid of being discovered. Her time was limited. Blonde hair, round face, colorful, swirling eyes of like they're full of paint. Her voice was heavy and raw. I'll give you an address. Meet me there tomorrow at 1 p.m. I need to see her. I jotted down the location, and the line went dead before I had a chance to ask any more questions. When I returned to the bedroom, Iris had wriggled from one side of her crib to the other, leaving a long squiggle of avocado green behind her. 
I didn't bother telling David why I wouldn't be coming into work that Thursday, and he didn't care enough to ask anyway. It was a two-hour drive from my home, through the suburbs and into the stark rural countryside. We traveled past fields and small clusters of ramshackle homes set far off the road, many partially hidden behind enchanted conifers and hedges that moved to protect the view of the settlements as I passed. The address the woman had given directed me to an abandoned gas station, a dilapidated relic of a bygone era. The weather-beaten windows were glazed and cracked and worn chunks of concrete were interspersed with layers of indiscernible graffiti. Generations of spiders nourished themselves on fat insects in all corners of the building. As I pulled my vehicle into the weedy, vacant lot, a faint silhouette shifted behind the chipped double doors. With one hand tucked under the carrier, and the other gripping a bag filled with baby supplies and a crusted giraffe, I hesitantly stepped towards the entrance. Hope and dread bloomed equally inside me. The door groaned in protest as I pushed it open, revealing an interior cloaked in a thick fog of dust motes that were illuminated through narrow shafts of sunlight. A tall woman stood in the back of the room, her wrinkles betraying her age, and her bright red hair pulled tightly in a bun. Her eyes were made of varied colors that swirled together. She fingered a necklace of glass beads looped around her throat. Most were painted in vibrant colors, but one was plain, as if something were missing. Fear and reticence filled the air between us, neither of us willing to take a step forward. The woman's eyes darted towards the carrier when Iris moved inside. Her lips quivered. May I see her? She asked softly. I set the carrier on the floor and pulled down the soft blanket. I cradled Iris in my arms, hesitating. It had been a long time since anyone else had held her. Who are you? I asked. Messina Thon, of Clan Thon. I'm surprised you found us. Gently, she drew Iris into her arms and swayed from one foot to the other in the rocking motion most parents seemed to know instinctively. A sad smile pulled at her lips. I'm sorry for making you wait for a response. That number you had is old, set up ages ago for emergencies when our last leader was alive. It's rarely checked. Our current clan leader is stricter, doesn't believe in using technology under any circumstances, not even when it could bring one of our missing back to us. She paused to brush the hair from Iris's forehead. We've managed to mostly avoid the department's notice for decades, ever since their experiments ended back in the 30s. Her look dared me to respond. I bet they don't teach that in school anymore. I shifted uncomfortably, understanding what she avoided saying and that reaching out and meeting me was a risk for her. I cleared my throat. Does she have a name? She shook her head, gazing at Iris. I wouldn't know it. Gabby. My daughter ran away when she discovered she was pregnant, left with a farm boy. Her voice hitched. I looked for her. We all did. But she was afraid of what would happen. Not everyone in our clan is accepting of the non-magical mix. They probably thought they'd do better in the city. Affection swept across Messina's face, but her smile faded into barely suppressed grief. I knew something had gone wrong. I felt it as if she'd drunk turpentine and faded away. She sniffed, trying to collect herself before she continued. Leo, the boy, returned a few weeks ago. He's refused to talk to any of us, won't even say what happened or where my Gabby dissolved. 
I can't even add her bead to my necklace. Bead? I asked. It's the only thing we leave behind when we die. Messina cleared her throat to cover the tremor in her voice. A bead coated with our colors. Iris stirred in her arms, squirming her shoulders against her grandmother's bony chest. Her lashes fluttered open, seeing eyes like her own. Similar, but not the same. It was easier to see the differences when they were so close. One was orderly lines, the other was blurring chaos. Messina gasped. Blood-red tears welled in her eyes. Oh no. It was a soft sound, like whispering down a moss-ridden well. The researchers said she was sick, but I thought her clan might be able to help. I choked on the question. Was I... am I wrong? Messina's breath shuddered. Painted tears trickled down her cheeks as Iris's small fingers brushed at them curiously before tangling in the glass beads around Messina's neck. There's a recessive gene that runs in our clan. It keeps some of us from solidifying completely. Bones that can't harden turn to mush. The lining of organs and blood vessels eventually breaks down until our colors run together, dissolving little by little. I hoped that Leo's influence would override. Her words were knives cutting us both. Can't you help her? What about the rest of the clan? There must be someone. At the sudden rise of my voice, Iris turned. Small arms reached for me as she whimpered. Mindless of the violet paint that splattered the front of her dress, Messina cradled the girl to her chest for a moment and sighed. She shook her head, eyes holding endless depths of anguish as she returned Iris to me. One of my sisters died before she was one. My nephew was the same. There's nothing anyone can do. Her fingers glided from one bead to the next before she stroked the back of Iris's head. All you can do is care for her until she passes. Me? She's your family. Surely you'd want to keep her. No one knows I'm here, she said, her voice gone low. The palm she pressed to her lips was covered in Iris's violet paint. Messina closed her eyes for a long moment. As her hand slowly dropped, a bright smear stained her lips and chin. If she'd been born amongst our clan with that anomaly, she would have been dissolved already. Her life would have been shorter than in your care. Maybe even shorter than with your researchers. But I thought the clans... I thought that you took care of your own. Laura, even if we were a stronger clan with more resources, nothing could stop what is happening to her. All we have is our limited magic, and after watching so many of our children die over the years, we try to lessen the suffering. Her tears welled again. If you want her to live a bit longer, it's best she stays with you. Plus, she's already bonded to you. I can't care for her. I don't know how to do any of this. My voice trembled, and I quelled the volume to keep from upsetting Iris further. Messina brushed my hair from my cheek with stained fingers. What do you need to know? Feed her when she's hungry, clean her when she's dirty, bathe her, soothe her, and hold her. I whispered, I can't watch her die. Something within me broke. The veneer of strength I had relied on splintered and cascaded down my cheeks. I hadn't let myself cry in a long time, so long that I'd nearly forgotten the initial sting and briny taste of my tears. 
Messina wiped my cheeks with gentle hands, studying the clear liquid on her fingertips before looking back at me sympathetically. Life and love are messy and fragile. No matter how much of either you have, it won't ever prepare you for when you have to let go. She enveloped us in her slender arms, painting my cheek with her sorrow. Messina said a quiet goodbye as she helped place the girl in the car, stroking her face one last time with tenderness and grief. My gaze lingered on her necklace as words stuck in my throat. When she... her bead... Keep it, she said. It's clan tradition to wear it when someone you love passes away. It will give you something to hold on to when she's gone. Something to remember the colors of her life with. Other than pulling over twice to collect myself, I remember little of the drive home. Leaving the dusty gas station, I'd vowed to protect Iris until her very last breath. No matter how much her paint stained my clothing, furniture, and skin, it was a small price to pay to hear her full belly chortles and breathe in her sweet-smelling hair. The following day, I found myself in a tense talk with David as I put in my request for a leave of absence and demanded payout for my untaken paid time off and the standard payment for foster parents. Our meeting then transitioned into an extensive virtual conference with the district manager and head researchers. When they attempted to bribe or threaten me, I responded with promises to publicize our exchanges and involve contacts above their heads. I hoped they didn't catch the tremor in my voice. It was half lying, of course, but I refused to abandon this lost child the way everyone else had. The meeting resulted in an extended leave of absence and veiled promises of professional stagnation. The green and gold of summer were giving way to dusky autumn when Iris finally rolled over. A few weeks later, she discovered her feet whilst gurgling happily on her back. Her peals of laughter shook the house intermittently for days. A month later, Molly and the twins were visiting when Iris sat up on her own for the first time. Molly had become my confidant and biggest asset for all the things I didn't know about babies. She'd celebrated each milestone with me and stroked my back in the moments of frailty. Soon after, Iris scooted across the floor for the first time. I no longer minded the dapples of orange and sapphire that seeped between the grooves of the oak planks. Everything could be cleaned or replaced someday. She delighted in the taste of pureed peaches and sweet potatoes and claimed a stuffed parrot as a new favorite toy. At eight months, just when I'd hit the depths of sleep-deprived despair, she began to sleep through the night consistently. I focused on celebrating each small milestone as if it were a miracle. Because each breath she took, every smile, each drop of paint, everything she did and each moment we shared was miraculous to me. I hadn't known it was possible to love like this, knowing it would end. Iris's attempt to pull herself up were weak, her body unable to coordinate the movement. And each time I raised her to her feet in an attempt to stand, her knees would buckle like a dropped scarf. It was a bleak winter day when fear humbled me enough to reach out to Dr. Arias. He was kind in his response and, under the guise of research, he began to visit us weekly and provide some guidance with her care. Her muscles are beginning to atrophy. His voice was strained. He stroked her head gently. His cold professional demeanor dissolved into warmth at the sight of Iris' smile. Maybe another month or two at most. It took a long moment for my words to form. Is she hurting? He shook his head. 
Not yet. I can prescribe something if you want, just to keep her comfortable. Iris never spoke in words, but I learned her language of cries and grunts. When I accidentally stepped on toys I'd forgotten to pick up, I didn't curse them. The pain of my body was a temporary distraction to the deeper rending inside me. I'd never had faith in anything other than science, but there were days of mounting desperation when I found myself standing beside her crib while she slept, and I prayed in the same way one of my foster parents had. Sometimes I would rub the smooth glass beads strung around my neck repeatedly, as if some divine force would notice my plea and take pity. But whomever, or whatever, I prayed to, never answered. When daffodils broke through the cold ground outside my windows, and spring ushered in new signs of life, I'd known for days what was happening. And yet, I wasn't ready. I don't imagine I ever would have been. I'd been steadily increasing her pain medication to make her passing easier, but as I cradled her frail frame against my chest, I felt a weight of sorrow that no amount of preparation could have lightened. I breathed in Iris's familiar scent. The warmth of her body soothed me as I tried to comfort her. The colors of her eyes dimmed, the slow swirling stilled. Her lips trembled in her final breaths as her tiny frame shuddered. I whispered words of love, fighting back my tears so that the last thing she saw on my face wouldn't be my sorrow. I only wanted her to know my love. There would be time to grieve for years to come. Her occasional gasps lessened. The rise and fall of her chest eventually stopped. Iris slipped away in a final swirl of sunflower yellow and sapphire blues as she dissolved in my arms. All that was left of her was a bead painted with beauty and love. That was A Life of Color by N.V. Haskell. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.